So I know what you're thinking. Why did I come to church today? (laughs) That's what I was thinking the first time I read through this like near 3,500 year old uh, priestly manual on the cusp of the Bronze Age. Why is this in the Bible? It's what many of us have thought as we've seen like Twitter quotes or Instagram quotes or Bible thumping preachers going back to this ancient priestly manual and condemning people. We've thought, why on earth study this book? We've thought, why on earth is this book in our book? Or maybe you've thought, even as you've come into church today, like, come on, what is God going to teach me through this ancient record of like priestly ritual and sacrifice? I was talking to somebody before we came in and got started, and she said, yeah, I saw that it was Leviticus this month, and I thought to myself, maybe this is a good month to take a break from church. There is so much mystery and, and sh- shroud of, a shroud of confusion around this book, but I think it has something to say to us. How on earth could God speak through the book of Leviticus to us? Well, first of all, it shows us the ancient track record, the ancient journey, the ancient experience of the religious community of which we are a part today. Now, the book of Leviticus, just a common understanding, maybe you've seen it in, a heading, uh, in the heading of your study Bible, just means like like the way of the tribe or the priests of Levi, the, the, the way of the Levites. But a more specific understanding, the more specific definition is, is so beautiful and way more intentional and speaks to the cause and the effect and the nature of the writing, the gathering of this ancient scroll specifically. And the Hebrew word is uh, va'yikara, va'yikara, which means the Lord called out or the Lord leans in. The Lord leans in. Now we are a New Testament church. We're a church that follows Jesus. We're a church that believes that the spirit dwells within us and moves us towards Christ-likeness as we become an unstoppable force of good in the world. But we can only get there through studying the ancient record, seeing where we've come from, where we're at now, and where God is taking us into the future. And this is the beauty of studying the entire narrative of scripture, the gathered body of the library that is called the Bible. And over the last number of years, we've been actually trucking through the Hebrew Bible, the the ancient text of the Old Testament, in particular the Torah. And the word Torah to our Jewish brothers and sisters and to us means teaching, instruction, the way. And so here we find ourselves landing in the third book of Torah, of the law of Moses. And we get to this book called Leviticus. Now a little bit about where we've been in the beginning, in Genesis. So a few years ago, we started our journey together through the beginning of the Old Testament. In Genesis, we see that God plants humankind in a garden, in a garden, and there's this unbroken intimacy and fellowship that God has, and the garden is a symbol of like growth and life and vitality, and it's also a symbol of the growth and life of vitality of God with his holy people, with the created people that he, he breathed into existence out of joy, not out of hate or out of anger. But we also see the cyclical nature of sin, of interruption, a fracture in humankind's relationship with God. In fact, the first instance that we hear of bloodshed, of bloodletting, of murder, is through the offspring of the first two humans. Their sons, they fight and they want to possess something. And one of them dies and God calls out and says, what, what have you done? 
Why is it that you have done this? What is it that made you do this? And throughout the book of Genesis, we see this narrative story arc of God wanting to be intimately connected with his creation and the cyclical nature of sin, but that God is not okay with it. That God is in the business of restoring and repairing and renewing all of his creation through humankind, working out to be an unstoppable force of good in the world. And if you fast forward to the next book of the Bible, Genesis and then Exodus, We find the devastating nature of sin has taken hold again. These people, these ancient people who God has called out of the city of Ur are now enslaved back in uh, and underneath the the, um, ancient culture of, of Egypt and later Babylon. And these were the superpowers of the known world that would conquer people and enslave them, would, would create them to be less than human. And all you did as an ancient Hebrew enslaved under, under the, the, the reign of, of Egypt was you built temples, you built altars, you built bricks so that the gods could do their thing, so that the gods could do their thing with the people that they have chosen. And what we read in Exodus is fascinating. The God of the universe who is not okay with sin speaks into their existence. He has heard the what? The cries of his people. And he takes an ex-Egyptian Midianite wandering slave, shepherd, and says, I will use you to redeem my people out of the slavery that they have experienced under the boot of empire. I've heard the cries of my people. I am, says the Lord. And he speaks to Moses and encourages Moses to lead them out of Egypt. And this fantastic Charlton Heston moment of the Red Sea's uh, parting, God leads them through the Sea of Reeds into this like unknown place. You notice that? He doesn't lead them straight into a promised land. He says that is coming, but there's some stuff that we have to do before we get there. And he leads them out into a wandering place, a lengthening place, an in-between place in the desert, uh, and then to the foot of Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And this is where like things take a right turn. And so God, the creator of the universe, is no longer showing up in like, uh, you know, random ways of voice and a burning bush and a little bit of smoke. Instead, God dwells on the mountain of Sinai. God lives on the mountain through smoke and fire, these divine symbols of presence. He lives on the mountain as a signal, as a symbol, as a reminder that God is with them. He has gone nowhere. And that Moses will be the priest, the redeemer that helps to arbitrate, broker the relationship with God because the people are fearful. They're like, please, just you go and talk to him. You go and deal with it. He seems angry, or at least our religious understanding of the gods in Egypt they're always angry and they're always a little bit killy. So you go and tell us what he has to say. And so Moses spends some time up on the mountain, up on the mountain, the presence of God, getting these laws, these requirements for religious and relational life with the God of the cosmos, the creator of the universe. And as that's happening, uh, the people are getting tired grumpy. They're like my kids when uh, we were little on a road trip. It's like, when's the next stop? Can we get a pop? Can we get something to eat? They're complaining and they're saying, it would be better if we could just go back to what we knew. At least there we had food and shelter. What is God doing with us out here in the wilderness? And you know what they do? Another right turn, the cyclical nature of sin and interruption and fracture. They take what is most precious to them and they melt it down and they form a golden calf. 
They form a golden calf, an idol, the very thing that God says, you don't have to have these idols, have no other God, no, no idol, no reminder, except for my presence. I am all you need. And the Israelites are like, well, we could use something else. So they form a golden calf, a symbol of power and virility that they are in charge. And Moses comes down the mountain, sees this, throws down the tablets, is frustrated as is God. God is not okay with this behavior. But then as you fast forward, something else happens. The cyclical cyclical nature of sin, but also reparation. God is repairing, restoring these people. And Moses offers himself. He says, take my life as a sacrifice, but still work with these people. Later, Jesus will say, I give my life freely as a ransom for people. Do you see what's happening here? God is asking us to pay attention to the rhythms of sin, of creation, of reparation, of reunion, and of relationship with him. And at the very end of Exodus, um, he says this, that I will be their God and they will be my people and they will enter into a covenant, a confessional relationship with the God of the universe that will never be broken, and that I will live with the people. Whoa, another right turn. That God doesn't just want to make his dwelling up on the mountain, apart, at least some distant distance away from humanity. Instead, God wants to dwell not just on the mountain, but in a tent, a dwelling, a living space, a holy place there among the people with a courtyard, like a backyard, with priests who will help to broker and communicate this ongoing relationship, and with an altar, the symbol of sacrifice, sanctification, and sacredness. That's my intro. Yes, thank you, we can pray. (laughs) So here's where we're headed, and I hope you will stick around, whether here in person, watching uh, online at one of our locations, or watching after the, fi- uh, after the fact. I understand, I understand, I understand the weight of, of uh, trying to journey through the book of Leviticus, this 3,500-year-old book, but I think God has something to say to us, to the experience of our, our forefathers and foremothers in the deserts outside of Egypt. At the base of Mount Sinai, I think there's something that God wants to say to us. So where we're headed, week one, sacrifice and offering today. Why is it that God requires this? What is it that God is doing with this as a symbol? Week two, I've affectionately um, named next week's sermon as priests who screw up, which is all of us. Uh, Week three, purity, and week four, sin and the day of atonement. What is the once and for all move of God that, that takes care of this all, that shuts shuts the need for this down. And so as we begin, and as we jump into this ancient text, I want to invite us to do something that's been very helpful in my uh, academic training. It's one of the things that um, one of my Old Testament professors would say all the time. He would say, "I I want to invite you to have a sympathetic view of the text. I want to invite you to have a sympathetic view of the text of this book. That is asking yourself, what could you receive from God today? And how is God asking you to respond today? Brothers and sisters, having a sympathetic view of an ancient text that has much to speak to us, even thousands of years later, we want to start with an open posture asking God, what could we receive from you today, and how is it that you want us to respond? And so God, by your spirit, would you speak to us through these ancient words, 
Would you speak to our current context? Would you open our hearts and our minds, our ears and also our bodies to mobilize, to put into action how you are calling us to respond? We trust that you will meet us by your spirit through the pages of scripture that is alive and is illuminating our hearts and our minds and our experience. Would you allow us to receive and respond? In Jesus' name and together we all said, amen, amen. Okay, here we go. You ready? Turn to the book of Leviticus, your favorite book on all of our Facebook and Instagram pages, your favorite book, Leviticus chapter one, and we're gonna read verses one to four. So Genesis Exodus, Leviticus. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It's the third um, book or scroll in uh, the Hebrew Torah, which means teaching. And now it's there for a minute. I'll invite you while I'm just giving a quick overview to turn there, keep your thumb in your physical Bible or on your phone. I want you to have it open the whole time because I think the first four verses teaches us so much about the next seven chapters. Now, Leviticus is smack dab in the middle of Torah, of teaching, and that is intentional. Our Hebrew brothers and sisters, our Jewish brothers and sisters from the rabbinic tradition would say Leviticus is the most important book for child rearing. If you're going into Torah study, this is one of the first books that the current even rabbis and certainly the ancient rabbis would teach children because Leviticus is all about purity. And what better way to instruct your children in how to live pure lives than to start with this book. But that's a fascinating, mysterious kind of like, but it's crazy. It's crazy, why start there? Okay, you'll see what I mean. Leviticus chapter one, verses one to four. And the Lord called to Moses from the tabernacle, the tent of meeting and said to him, Vayikra, the Lord called to Moses, Vayikra, and leaned in and communicated with his creation. The Lord called to Moses and said to him, give the following instructions to the people at the base of Mount Sinai to the people of Israel, those called holy ones who he's redeemed out of slavery in Egypt and later Babylon. Give these instructions to the people. When you present an animal as an offering to the Lord, you may take it from your herd of cattle or your flock of sheep and goats. <laughs> what? If the animal you present is a burnt, as a burnt offering is from the herd, it must be a male with no defects. What? Bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle, the place of meeting, the dwelling space of God, so you may be accepted by the Lord. Lay your hand on the animal's head, and the Lord will accept its death and sacrifice in your place to purify you, making you right with him. Okay, so what is happening here? God has given some, like at a a cursory reading, some random instructions about herds and goats and cattle and death and sacrifice on the altar at the beginning of a brand new scroll and book. Now, the way that these ancient texts were written is like in close proximity. So if if, if you back up just a few chapters into the end of Exodus, we find that God has given instruction about, in fact, the last three quarters of the book of Exodus is God giving instruction of how to set up this dwelling place. That God is no longer interested in dwelling up on the mountain. In fact, he's downsizing. He's selling off his stuff, so to speak, and moving down into the camp with the people. And what does he want to craft? Well, he wants to craft a a temple, a holy space, a bedroom where he will live, and then an outer living room where the priests will, will broker this relationship, and then an outer courtyard within which will sit an altar. God is moving and growing their understanding 
through this act of what it means to be human, what it means to repair this broken relationship with God, but also with each other, to live in charity and affection and union and community and grace with each other. And then God says, and I don't want there to be anything between us. I'm going to move down, tells Moses the plans for the bedroom, the living room, the outer court, and the altar. And then he talks about in the beginning of Leviticus, what? These offerings, these ritual um, relational requirements and reminders. There's no power in, in the object itself. They are reminders of a greater spiritual reality. Now, I know what you're thinking. Jimmy, did you bring animals with you today? I'm glad you asked. Yes, I did. I did bring some animals with me today. So I brought some friends with me just to uh, make the points. Okay, so here's what we have. We have our sheep, which is the most consistent offering. We have Eeyore, better known as cow or cattle. We have uh, birds or doves, and this is an owl. And because I couldn't find a bull at my house, this is a pink unicorn. So for now, it'll do. And then the last element that we find in the text is actually... Uh, Flower. I didn't tell my wife that I was bringing this. My hands are washed, honey. It's going to be fine. So there are five offerings that God um, instates, that God says these are important. There's five. There's a burnt offering, a grain offering, a peace offering, a purification offering, and a guilt offering. So the first one is a burnt offering, and it has to do with sin. It's an expression of the whole self to God. It would be a bull, a sheep, or a goat, or a dove, or a pigeon. And for now, we'll, we'll use Eeyore as the example. So first example is the bull or the sheep or the dove. But primarily, this would have been a big deal in the ancient world. Yes, I'm going to have her sit right on my lap here. The whole animal was consumed on the altar and it atoned for, it went in the place of the worshiper's sin and made connection with God possible. These were symbols of a greater reality. As you brought something of yourself, a gift that you owned and had in your position, uh, possession, you offered it to God. And through this symbolic act of, of consumption, God made known his presence with you and his atonement for you. Brothers and sisters, you are forgiven. Through so the act of the burnt offering, the bloody and smoky and gutsy and earthy mess that it is, you are forgiven. A symbolic act of the burnt offering, covering your sin and making connection with God possible. And number two, uh, grain. So a grain or a flower offering. And so what you would do, or actually the, the priests would do, is they would come and they would take some of the flour and they would sprinkle it. They would take a handful and they would sprinkle it on the altar, usually mixed with olive oil and always with salt. And, and then they would burn it or they would consume it. They would make something out of it. And this was a symbol of like your thankfulness, your gratitude to God for his provision in your life. You would make bread. You would make bread because you were thankful to God, seasoned with olive oil and salt. It was a gift. You're reminded of the gift of God's presence with you. And the gift of your presence with God, that God is like, I'm so glad you are here. And this was just like a normal thing out of your agricultural produce as an act of thanksgiving. Certainly the joy of sins being forgiven, but also recognition of your connection with the divine presence, with the God of the universe that makes bread with you. 
that eats and fellowships with you. As thankful to God that you, as you are, God is thankful for you. He enters into a, symbol, a symbolic act of, of flour and bread and water and olive oil. The next is, is a fascinating one. So we've done burnt and grain or sin and gratitude. And then the next one is, is a peace offering. So this is one of those shifts again, where it moves from the, horizon, uh, the vertical relationship with God into the horizontal line of um, the community together. So the peace offering, which was a cow, a sheep, uh, a goat, or bread, it could be any of it, it was optional. You brought what you could bring. It was given in addition to the burnt offering and it culminated with a shared meal. It was like an ancient Near Eastern potluck. So you, you would bring this to um, you know, the priests, the stewards of the altar, and they would burn some of it, they would cook some of it, and then you would sit down together with the presence of God, with the priests who had kind of brokered this relationship, your family, and whoever was there with you, expressing gratitude. You ate together. And there are three primary ways that this happened. There was the Thanksgiving offering, which is a, a free will offering given as an act of just being thankful. Uh, when you felt like God has blessed me without me even like asking for it. I just, God has provided for me. There was the wave offering, which is the, the, the priest would uh, like wave the smoke or wave over the offering as a symbol of God's presence, which you saw like when we began this morning, the smoke being that divine, like all encompassing signal symbol of God's presence that you would wave the smoke symbolizing that God is moving here, present among you, with you, loving you, thankful for you as you are thankful for him. And then there was the vow offering. It was one of those things where you were like, I promise to do this. I promise to be nicer to my husband or my wife or my kids, or I promise to give like a portion of my land to those that are less fortunate. I promise to like uh, maintain this relationship with this other person in the community. I promise to stay connected to the God of the universe through these symbols and these rituals of relationship, a vow, a free will offering given because of a vow taken or in relation to like just, just the, a favor that you'd received. And then the purification offering or sin is it was cleansing. Again, elements of all. And it dealt with primarily two issues. The necessity of forgiveness from like things that you didn't pay attention to. Unintentional sin or ways that you had kind of like made a mistake that you're like, oh shoot, did something happen there? Or ceremonial uncleanness, like things that actually made your body sick. And again, as you read through the first seven chapters and onward of the book of Leviticus, we're dealing with an economy that has no medical community. There are no hospitals. These people are living out in the desert. And so while we might read portions of Leviticus and say, this is arbitrary, like why are they staying away from like the lobes of kidneys and livers? Well, these are like waste organs and God is like, that'll probably make you sick if you handle it poorly. And so through the sacrifice, the sacrifice of animals, I will also bless you with cleansing. But there's something that you bring to the table as well. So purification or, or the sin, the cleansing offering dealt with exactly that. The purpose of purification was to cleanse God's people and cleanse God's presence with people, the tabernacle uh, from defilement, thus making the continuing union possible. Okay, are you still with me? Yeah? Isn't this fascinating? Yes, it's amazing, it's amazing. I mean, it's just me, I'm a history nerd. Okay, guilt, this is the last one, guilt. Um, this is another really important one, especially for a, a, a gathered group of wandering desert nomads who are plunked together in one concentrated uh, move of God or a gathering of wandering civilized nomads from Ontario who are plunked together in one spot 
And God is making sure that it's not just all eyes forward, that there's reparation and care that needs to happen in community. So the guilt offering was all about reparation. And this was the most expensive offering. It was a ram, which we'll use the unicorn for again. It was a ram or it was money. It was the little bit of money that you had and God's like, yeah, get rid of it, get rid of it. It reminded the individual to look beyond just the, the instance of their own sin and shortcoming, but the effect that it has on another person. How will your sin and your poor behavior or your broken appetites not just affect your relationship with God, but affect the people that live around you, your brothers and sisters in this spiritual family? The guilt offering was quite literally called reparation because the person not only sought forgiveness for the impact that it had on relationship, but also restitution. So if it was a financial mishandling, not only would you pay that person back and give a sacrifice, you would add to it. You would add a percentage saying, I don't wanna be this kind of person within this kind of community. I wanna live generously and fully without debt or being indebted to another person. And if I've ever done that, God, forgive me and I will make it right to like the 10th or 20th degree. Let there be nothing in between us as brothers and sisters as part of this ancient religious community as God is restoring our relationship with each other and with him. So where have we been? Sin, gratitude, community, cleansing, and repair. Sin, gratitude, community, cleansing, and repair are those words that are at all meaningful to us. Absolutely. These are still markers of a healthy community. These are still markers and doing words of an active and vibrant relationship with God. Though this symbol of, of an altar is an ancient and outdated one, the, the principle behind the precept still speaks deeply to our existence with God, that God is not okay with sin and God is in the business of repairing it, and that God intends for us to be an unstoppable, charitable, unified, arms-linked community that, that does good in the world, that is a mirror to the rest of the world of what God looks like and what God's people look like reflecting him. But why? So why all this? Why Leviticus? Why all the blood and guts? I think in that first fragment of the first sentence of Leviticus chapter one, verse one, we start to get the picture because God also is giving up and leaning in. And he does so today in, with, and through us. God did not stay on the, this is the creator of the cosmos, breathes, breathes the world into existence and decides, I wanna live there. I wanna live with my people, not just up on a mountain, staying at a distance, but I wanna live there among the people. And then it's fascinating as you move through the rest of the book of Leviticus and into Numbers, you find out that the tent, the tabernacle, the dwelling place of God is a mobile one. The God is like, yeah, we're not gonna stay here. I'm taking you somewhere. I'm gonna teach you something as you come out of Egypt because sometimes it's easier to come out of Egypt than to get the Egypt out of you. It's gonna take some time to learn these new rhythms of relationship, but then we are headed somewhere. A promise of blessing, of, of geography, of land for you, but also of community and family that will dwell on the earth forever. And God leans into that because this is the currency in the economy of God. Now, I wanna take us quickly back to, um, I'm not surprised that we're out of time. Um, 
Luke chapter two. Did you see that in the quotes? Uh, Mary and Joseph have brought their baby Jesus, the Lamb of God at the breast of this mother Mary, and she comes to the temple when Jesus is just an infant, and what does she do? She offers the sacrifices required by the law of Moses. Now, there's a couple things that the sacrifice requires. The sacrifice actually for purification after childbirth, which makes you unclean, is a lamb or a goat, but if you cannot afford it, you can bring a bird, a dove, and that is exactly what Mary does. She is a poor person. She cannot afford very much. Her and Joseph have made the journey to bring the sacrifice. They have very little, but they still take on their responsibility. And God does not say, oh, you despicable poor people. Instead, he takes this mother's offering, which is poor people currency. Think of the image, that picture, the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world at the breast of the Virgin Mary, offering sacrifice for a system that will not continue. This baby that she is holding will end the sacrificial system with his once and for all sacrifice. Another magnificent um, reminder, image, picture of the generosity and grace of God, but still accommodating the currency of poor people. God loves and uses and responds to and hears poor people, poor in wealth, poor in spirit, poor in economy. This is the currency of the God that loves us and that we love in return. And then the covenant, this is the, this is the, the, the mandate of God, that, that God's um, uh, currency is also covenant, promise, commitment, connection, to humanity. The economy of God is promise, is relationship and sacrifice, is offering. God offers himself to you and we offer ourselves to him. And it's not all blood and guts and sacrifice. Actually, there are gifts that God has given us, you, me, us today as the family of God that we bring to the quote unquote altar and say, God, would you use me? And God's like, yes, absolutely. My kid, my son, my daughter, yes. But there are also some things that he asks us to leave behind. There are some things in this journey in relationship with Jesus that by his spirit, he will ask us to leave behind. Our relationship with God will cost us something. And so what is our altar today? What is it that we come and bring out of our own hearts and affection, but is, what is also the things that we need to like sacrifice and kill on the altar in order that we can move forward with Jesus? As I was thinking through and praying about this this week, I, I will admit um, for me, one of the things that God, or a few of the things that God was like, Jimmy, I love you so much, but this part of you has to stay behind, has to stay in Egypt's um, control. Fear of an unknown future that up until now felt fairly known. Fear for our church, for us as a church family, that we would survive and care for each other and thrive. For our country, 
for North America, I mean, think about this. Like, we're, we're reading an ancient text of a wandering tribe of immensely poor desert nomads, and we're sitting uh, in these comfortable chairs in one of the wealthiest nature, nations in, in human history. So I wonder if oftentimes God is inviting us to put that on the altar, our obsession with the accumulation of wealth and stuff. Just getting more. This is the Egypt that God is taking out of us in order to move us forward. Maybe it's our own sense of like possessive anger. Have you been on Twitter lately? Have you been on Instagram lately? I don't know what it is about a social media platform that, that makes us like anger, uh, angry at each other. I think God says to us, you should leave that behind. Or maybe it's an attitude a self-attitude or an appetite, a posture towards ourselves or towards a brother or sister or family member that is causing harm. And God is not okay with that. He is inviting us to leave that behind, offering that to him, knowing that in its place, he offers his love, his covenant, his currency, his connection, his promise back to us in that And so I would love for us to close our time in the way that we began. Asking God, what have we received from you today? And how should we respond? I want you to close your eyes. And we're just going to take a few seconds to consider those questions. Let's pray. God of grace, thank you for speaking through these ancient texts. Remind us of what we have received from you today. And even more importantly, how should we respond? In Jesus' name and together we all said, amen.